What a great ministry to both parents, to children. It's a great time uh, that they have over there, learning to love the Lord. Uh, it's one of the great ministries that we do, and um, I'm sure you've seen we, we only need two more, and we can split up uh, two, two more adult leaders, and we can split up our, our classes into two separate classes and have smaller class size, and hopefully that'll be uh, more sustainable for all of you as well. But if you would, um, but now let's turn our attention to uh, the, the word of the Lord. Uh, so if you would turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 4, we'll be doing verses 5 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 31. Um, quick recap of the preceding chapters. We saw God called Jeremiah, who is a youth, to become the prophet of Judah. Uh, the northern kingdom has already been destroyed by uh, the Assyrians and, uh, prior to this book. Uh, Judah is small, weak, isolated, and vulnerable, and sort of in that precarious international position. Uh, they've turned to idols and to alliances with world superpowers like Egypt. And naturally, they shouldn't have done that. And uh, so much of chapters 1 through 3 is devoting to the, devoted to the Lord building uh, sort of a legal case against uh, Judah, which has broken the covenant that God has made with them uh, due to their spiritual adultery. And so not only have they turned from God, but they've picked up with the gods of their neighbors. And so when we get to our passage today, we get into the consequences of that idolatry, uh, consequences of that spiritual adultery. So look with me, uh, Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 5 to 31. Please pay attention, for this is the word of the Lord. Declare in Jerusalem and proclaim in uh, declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, blow the trumpet through the land, cry aloud and say, assemble and let us go into the fortified cities, raise a standard toward Zion, flee for safety, stay not, for I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket, a destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. For this, put on sackcloth, lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. In that day, declares the Lord, courage shall fail both kings and officials. The priests shall be appalled and the prophets astounded. Then I said, ah, Lord God, Surely you have utterly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying, It shall be well with you, whereas the sword has reached their very life. At that time it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, A hot wind from the bare heights in the desert, toward the daughter of my people, will not to winnow or cleanse, a wind too full for this comes for me. Now it is I who speak in judgment upon them. Behold, he comes up like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil, that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims trouble from Mount Ephraim. Warn the nations that he is coming. Announce to Jerusalem. Besiegers come from a distant land. They shout against the cities of Judah. Like keepers of a field, they are against her all around, because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom, and it is bitter. It has reached your very heart. 
my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Crash follows hard on crash. The whole land is laid waste. Suddenly, my tents are laid waste, my curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good they know not. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. And to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking. And all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man. And all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert. And all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. For this the earth shall mourn and the heavens above be dark, for I have spoken, I have purposed. I have not relented, nor will I turn back. At the noise of the horseman and archer, every city takes to flight. They enter thickets and they climb among rocks. All the cities are forsaken and no man dwells in them. And you, O desolate one, what, are, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet? that you adorn yourself with or ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint. In, in vain you beautify yourself. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. For I heard a cry as a woman in labor, anguish as one giving birth to her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion, gasping for breath, stretching out her hands. Woe is me. I am fainting before murderers. Let's pray. Father, as we read this account of the disaster that is coming upon Judah, Lord, I pray that you would make it alive to us. Lord, we take uh, your word and we ask that you would open it to us, that you would speak loudly, that you would um, reveal just how great our sin is and just how great your grace is. So Lord, be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I want to talk this morning about a problem that I have, uh, a problem that I have when I read Jeremiah, okay? Uh, I stood on this a long time this week, and uh, I hadn't realized I did this until this week, which is sort of kind of terrifying all in of itself. And I call it disaster detachment. Um, I'm talking about how I react to the sort of horrific events of our day that I don't have a personal connection to. So, for instance, um, and what I mean by this is 9-11, the, the horrific events of 9-11, and let's say the Las Vegas shootings, are different to me. On 9-11, I had friends that lived in New York City. Um, I was anxious for them all the day, um, and it was, you know, it was just one of those days that even though uh, all my friends made it through just fine, I felt personally attacked. Um, Americans across the nation felt this way. We as a nation had just been attacked, and that's why um, where we were on the day when we heard the news, it seared into our brain. If I asked any one of you, where were you on 9-11, you'd be like, oh yeah, I know exactly where I was. Some of you kids weren't born at that point, but um, I remember exactly where I was. I was going up the stairs in my, in my high school, 
and I heard, oh yeah, somebody flew into the World Trade Center and I walked into my study hall period and there it was on the TV. I can tell you exactly where it was. Now, what about Las Vegas, the Las Vegas shooting? Horrific, terrible, amazingly evil. Not quite, big, as, quite as big a death toll, but still horrific. And I had to be reminded that one year ago, this past Monday, was the anniversary of the Las Vegas shooting. It didn't occur to me that that day was the day of uh, the Las Vegas shooting. Sure, I felt sort of outraged at the evil and felt bad and all of that, but I just sort of went along with my life. It didn't really affect me. Um, and I think that's what I do with Jeremiah. The events of the book happened over 2,000 years ago, and I almost have no personal connection with the people um, that the book is talking to, apart from the fact that this is God's word to me. And to be honest, reading the account of this judgment, which just took forever, right? Reading the account just sort of sounds like, it, it was like reading stats, like battle stats, you know? Like Indonesia, the, the death toll is ever rising, right? 1,700. But we don't take the time to sort of think about what that means. I sort of read it, and the bad things, I'm like, okay, great. The Lord's going to whack them for their sin. Awesome. So? So what? And I think that's our problem. We don't put ourselves in sort of the shoes of the people that were going to hear this book. And so it doesn't come alive to us. It doesn't have an impact to us. And so to sort of remedy that, we're going to try to do exactly that this morning. We're going to try to take the passage that we just read and look at it from the different perspectives of the different characters. So first we're going to look at the perspective of the people, and then we're going to look at the perspective of God, and then we're going to look at the perspective of Jeremiah. And hopefully, hopefully this passage will come alive to us and will have the heft and the impact that, the, that God's word ought to have on our life. So, First, the perspective of the people. And this one's pretty straightforward, so we're going to go through it pretty quickly. What's the message to the people? What's the judgment look like that they're responding to, the calamity that they're going to have to react to? Well, this is pretty easy. You're finished. You're done. Simple rule of thumb, if the Lord's going to declare judgment on you, he's not going to mess around, Okay. Verses 5 to 8 say that there's an invasion coming from the north. The army from the north is described as a lion that's gone out on a hunt. It's a destroyer of nations, and only destruction will be left in its wake. It's so bad that Jeremiah doesn't even bother to tell the people to repent and uh, doesn't even, you know, bother to tell them to repent or to pray, really, all they're supposed to do is to put on sackcloth and ashes, lament and wail at the destruction that is coming. It's kind of bleak, you know? If we jump down to verse 11, the calamity is, is described as a hot wind from the mountains of the desert that is too strong to be used to winnow, winnow the crops. So since none of us are farmers here, um, and most of us don't come from a farming background, farmers would use a good wind to sort of separate the chaff and the grain. So you take the whole mix, you toss it up in the air, and you'd hope that this sort of good breeze would blow the lighter chaff off and the, the heavier grain will just sort of drop, and that's how you sort of, sort of um, separate the grain from the chaff. 
But this wind, this wind is so strong that not only does it take away the chaff, but it also takes away the grain. And it's, so it's not really there to be helpful. The only thing it does is really destroy, because you throw up the grain and you lose it. Okay? And so this wind that Jeremiah is describing is what's called a Sirocco. It's a powerful dust storm that happens uh, sort of in the Middle East. It comes off of, the, uh, the, uh, off of North Africa. And it's so big, this dust cloud is so big that you can see it from space. Like I Googled Sirocco because I saw it in the commentaries. I was like, what is that? And it's just this giant sort of brown cloud that will take up like half of the Mediterranean Sea. It's huge, right? It'll come off the sort of western side of Africa and reach halfway across the Atlantic. It's this big, huge, choking dust storm. It literally gets into everything. It'll cut the visibility down to like here, okay? And this is the kind of wind that comes. And it's perfect to describe the kind of invasion that's coming. It rolls over the land. It covers everything. Nothing is left that's untouched. And what's left? Nothing. You're just left with this brown, like, dust-covered wasteland. And if that wasn't bad enough, the warning signals and how they come in, it's terrifying too. In verse 15, the voice comes from Dan, which is the northernmost tip of Israel, uh, northernmost tip of the kingdom. And you're like, okay, that makes sense. The invasion's coming from the north. It's logical that they would be the first ones to sort of raise the alarm. But then in the same couplet, sort of the same verse, the the second half of it, the call comes up from Mount Ephraim, which is 10 miles from Jerusalem. And so in the blink of an eye, the invasion is at Jerusalem's doorstep. And that's not all that surprising since the, the forces of God, of, um, the judgment forces are coming and they're described as a cloud, a cloud that sort of flies along. And the chariots, like a whirlwind, have, have, how many of you guys have ever like gotten close to a fast moving cloud? Like you're on top of like a ridge on camping and like the cloud is flying by you, anybody? It's amazing. I spent a night on, on a ridge top one time, um, and probably about 50 feet above my head, there were these clouds that were zooming by. It was like you were standing still, and there's like a race car just zooming by, like you're watching an Indy car, and it just like flies by. And that's the kind of picture that we're getting, is that this, this invasion stops for no one, right? And it's coming at the speed of sound. It's crazy. It's an unstoppable force that rolls over Judah without much trouble. And so now is the time to put yourself in the shoes of the people. You know, how would you feel if the man that was called specifically to deliver God's word to you said, hey, this is coming, and it's coming soon? Well, the first reaction would be maybe sort of disbelief. You're like, oh, that's not going to happen then quickly following that, it'll be fear. And we see that in verse 9. In, the, in fact, the mere threat of invasion completely overwhelms the leadership and structure of, of the nation. The three pillars of Jewish society, sort of the, the kings, the officials, the priests, and the, the prophets, they all melt before even the, the, the threat of invasion. <laughs> 
the disaster's not here yet. Nothing's happened. But the mere threat of it just sort of destroys the courage of the kings and officials, and the priests and the prophets are stunned into silence. That's how bad it is. And why? Why why do they react this way? They react this way because they thought that everything was going to be fine. They believed that the Lord would never let his holy city fall to heathens, regardless of their covenant faithfulness or rather faithlessness. But it's it's clearly not going to go the way they hoped. And so let's stop and take our time here. We know intellectually what this would mean to the people hearing this pronouncement of inevitable coming disaster. People are going to die. Buildings are going to get destroyed. Sieges are going to happen. All of that. But what would that mean for you if you were there? Think about what this would mean for your kids, for your parents, for your friends. Think about what this would mean for you. The hunger as you live through the siege. The panic as people that you know that are coming to destroy you and your family as they breach the wall. The terror as you see those same people running down your streets and entering your neighbor's houses. Think about the scene and you begin to understand the terror that ought to grip your heart. There's a reason why Jeremiah ends our passage with with a vivid description of the city of Jerusalem crying out, not from childbirth, but from being murdered. It's terrible. It's really the stuff of nightmares if you really sit and think about it. What would the, the next reaction be? Well, you would do everything in your power to avert this disaster. So what would you do? And from our perspective in 2018, the answer is easy. You repent and believe, and you you repent from your wickedness. You throw yourselves at the mercy of God and hope that he may turn from his anger and spare them. But the problem with that is we don't do that. That answer doesn't take into account the strength of idolatry, the power of idolatry, the grip that idolatry has on our lives. Rarely do we turn from sin willingly. We tenaciously fight for our idols, and we keep coming back to them, even in the most dire circumstances. And so what do they do? Verse 30, they go back to what they know. They go back to hoping for powerful allies that will save them instead of turning to the Lord. And really, this is just a continuation of the spiritual idolatry and prostitution that brought the judgment in the first place. They are portrayed as dressing up all fancy like a woman of the night in uh, scarlet robes with gold ornaments and makeup to try and seduce a lover that might protect them. And so Judah is hoping to look attractive enough to win a protector. But this is so foolish. Prostitutes don't attract protectors. They attract predators. They're hoping that someone falls in love with them and raises them up a la sort of pretty woman. But that just doesn't happen because they're looking for the help in all the wrong places. And at the end of the verse, we see, in vain you beautify yourself. Your lovers despise you. Instead of the protection that they get, they get murder. They seek your life. And so to recap, basically the people are about to be destroyed and they're afraid. And so they continue to look at their worthless idols instead of turning back to the Lord. And in reality, they're just making it worse. And from a 2018 perspective, it all looks pretty stupid. 
right? They're doing the same things and hoping for a diff different result. And that perspective brings us to our second look at this passage, the perspective of God. And this one, I think, will be quick, too. So what's God thinking while he's sending his judgment? Well, this is kind of obvious, Mr. Captain Obvious right here. He's angry at them. Great. Twice we see here that God's fierce anger is spoken about in verses 8 and verses 26. It's rather obvious since he's sending judgment against them. He wouldn't send judgment against them if he was happy with them, right? So he's angry with them. Pretty, pretty straightforward. If you want to know God's true feelings of them, let's look at verses 22 to 26. For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good they know not. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void into the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the, fruit, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. God is ticked. And he's so determined to dissolve the covenant relationship with them, even if it's only temporary, that to Jeremiah, who's watching this unfold in a vision, the judgment will be like uncreation. One of the commentators writes, what has been revealed to Jeremiah is a picture of the dissolution of the cosmos as a sign of how dire the impending desolation of Judah was to be and also a sign of how structurally significant the divine action was. Dissolving, however temporary, the covenant between the Lord and Israel was a step of the same magnitude as undoing the divine creative purpose of the earth and reverting to pre-creation chaos. That's how mad God is. That's how far it's gone. That's what God's judgment is going to be like. Uncreation. And who can blame him? Three chapters, three whole chapters, and Jeremiah does not write small chapters, Three chapters leading up to this chapter have talked about the people's sinfulness. They've made idols in explicit defiance of commandment one and commandment two. They've deserted their God. Not even pagans do that, right? They've committed spiritual idolatry. They've turned their backs on their loving God who has blessed them with a bountiful land and brought them up out of the land of Egypt. And as we've pointed out for a number of weeks now, Jeremiah 2.13 tells us that Judah has committed two evils, that they have forsaken me, who me, God, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And even when Jeremiah tries to pin it on God, in verse 10, saying, Ah, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying, It shall be well with you. Whereas the sword has reached their very life, God is not moved. Jeremiah is basically saying, God, you're sovereign, and it's only this way because you let it be that way, which sort of seems on the face of it a legitimate um, argument. <laughs> but God just doesn't even pay attention to it. He doesn't get to a response until verse 18, eight whole verses later, where he says, your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. And so God is not moved. He says, this is your fault. And so we're seeing God who is an abandoned husband, his wife Judah has left him for anyone and everyone she can get her hands on. And so we're seeing a righteous judge, a wrathful Lord. And who can blame him? 
this judgment is richly deserved. And all of us here can sit confidently and agree that this judgment is richly deserved. If you remember back at the beginning, I said that we tend to read these judgments and feel detached. I would say that we approach these texts with detachment because we don't have that sort of personal connection. But I also think we feel detached because we don't ever place ourselves with the people receiving judgment. We don't tend to place ourselves alongside those sinners. Just a few minutes ago, like maybe a minute and a half ago, I said from a 2018 perspective, it's pretty stupid. They're doing the same things and hoping for a different result. Who am I standing with? Who am I siding with? Who am I identifying with? I'm standing with God. I'm standing with God in judgment and in righteousness. And in some ways, that's a really great thing, right? I can see sin for what it is. And we ought to burn with righteous sin, uh, with righteous anger at sin, just as God does. We ought to affirm that these people were, in fact, wicked. But the problem is that we ought to remember that we are just like those people. Typical pastor move, right? Don't associate yourself with the good people. Associate yourself with the bad people. But let's be honest. We don't like the idea of being that bad. We don't like the idea of being that wicked. And we don't think that we're just we're as terribly adulterous as the Israelites are. We're good people. We don't kill anybody. We don't have Buddhas or whatever in our, in our houses. We don't have idols. We don't have Ashtaroths. We don't have Baals. But in fact, we're worse. And why can I say that? I can say that Because we Christians in the 21st century have received far more revelation, far more grace, far more of a taste of God's goodness than these poor souls receiving the wrath in Jeremiah's day. And what have we done with that amazing blessing of God's word? We've thrown it to the ground as we chase after our idols. We have just as many idols as they do back then. Sure, they aren't sort of Baals and Ashros and all that. They aren't the deities of Egypt or Assyria. No, we have material prosperity and security. We have political power. We have sexual license and self-determination. I get to be whatever I want to be. You can't tell me what to be. We have pride. We have self-righteousness and moral elitism. Folks, we like to be right. It's one of the reasons why you're probably at a PCA church is because you think that theologically we've got it good, that we are right. And most of the time, we tend to feel superior about it. We have better theology than everybody else. And even right now, I'm just demonstrating this idol, right, for you as I point out how self-righteous we are, right? Look at me. I'm so righteous. I can point out when you're self-righteous. No. We should not stand with God in that way. We are too much like the people that Jeremiah is talking about to stand with God in righteous indignation and judgment. But we're not exactly like those people either. I think many of us and most of us, I think, generally do desire righteousness. And that's a big difference. 
We want to be good people, people that bring glory to God and care for those around us that are hurting, that are lost. And so I think we're a much better fit to stand with Jeremiah. So what's Jeremiah's perspective? Jeremiah is in, in this weird, interesting place. He's caught in the middle. On the one hand, he's the prophet of God. He's been divinely called to proclaim God's wrath and judgment upon these people. But personally, he's just as angry and frustrated with the people as God is. He's totally willing to affirm that God's right in his judgment. The people absolutely deserve to be destroyed. But on the other hand, this judgment is coming for him. This judgment isn't for somebody else, but for him. For his family, his neighbors, his friends, his countrymen. The pain of the disaster that is coming is personal. It's no wonder that his reaction is one of pain and anguish. Read with me verse 19. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. We can see the great tension that Jeremiah has to deal with in his life being fully with his people in the pronouncement of judgment that he himself is bringing, as well as standing fully with his Lord God Almighty. Do you feel the war that is going on within Jeremiah, the need to love his people, but also the need to love justice and righteousness? And let me sort of illustrate this predicament to you in sort of modern terms. And I know this will be a little weird since I said that we fit best with Jeremiah, but please bear with me, Okay. I said at the beginning of the sermon that we have to deal with the scourge of mass shootings in our culture. That these disasters are products of enormous evil. And we go to great lengths to remember those killed in these horrific, horrific acts. Thousands of articles remembering the events of October 1st, 2017 in Las Vegas were written in the immediate aftermath of the massacre. But some of the most interesting were written about a group that we forget that are largely forgotten, the families of shooters. Think with me a moment about their predicament. In some ways, these families have lost far more than anybody else. They have lost someone that they dearly love. They will never be able to hug their son again. They'll never be able to open Christmas presents with them again. The grief is very, very real, but they have a hard time processing that grief because guess what? They have shame. They, along with everyone else in the nation, understand just how terrible and how unspeakable the acts that were committed by their loved ones are. They are awash in the competing emotions of the revulsion of the act and love for the brother or sister or the son or daughter. And it's worse because they're left to process all of these emotions in isolation. Think about the embarrassment, the guilt, the shame that comes with being connected with one of these shooters. It's a stain that won't come off. All the questions of what kind of parent raises a shooter? What kind of brother is a brother to a shooter? Could you have done something? Could you have said something? Why didn't you catch it sooner? Couldn't you have done something? The Washington Post wrote an article about these people in the wake of the Vegas shootings, and it details what it meant for the family of the Virginia Tech shooter. And... Um, the shooter at Virginia Tech was 
Korean, and his parents were from Korea, from South Korea. And in the wake of the shooting, the parents were told by relatives back in South Korea through the media that they weren't welcome to come back to South Korea. They were told, don't try to come back because we won't let you. Think about like the dissolution of the family ties, especially in an Asian culture like that. They're left in this unspeakable tension to work out feelings that they don't know how to process. And the whole article ends like this. How do you come out whole? You can't. You can't. And this is Jeremiah's lot, and indeed, this is our lot. The judgment, the destruction of, Jer- of Judah, the sinfulness of the people, it all pierces his very heart, and it tears it to pieces, even though he knows that this calamity is of their own making. There's a reason why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. He's torn, just like Shooter's families are. Honestly, this is who we should be like. Christians in the room, you know that judgment is coming for everyone. Revelation 20, 11 through 15 makes this clear. When I, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From, this, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. Sound familiar? Like Jeremiah, maybe? And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the fire. Everyone's going to be judged according to their deeds. You, me, your neighbor, everyone's going to be found guilty too for the many, many sins that, you've been, that each has committed. And what's the judgment that is coming, the disaster foretold? The lake of fire, the second death, eternal torment. Does that disaster pierce your heart? Because that's what's coming for everyone that's without Christ. Does your heart break in agony over the folks that are still in their sin? Do you feel the tension that Jeremiah felt? Because the only way that you are saved from this second death is by being in the book of life. And so there is but one hope. And so let's ask that question. What is that hope? Where is the hope that we, that we can see in Jeremiah chapter 4? What comfort is there for Jeremiah and for us, knowing that judgment will inevitably come for everyone that we know, love, and for us? There are two nuggets buried in this passage, and I hope they jumped out to you. One is pretty obvious, and the other one is not quite so obvious. The obvious one is verse 27. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. What a sliver of hope. As devastating as the disaster is, as ticked off as God is at his people, the compl- as complete as the whole land shall be a desolation sounds, there is yet hope because God will not make it the end of the story full stop. And so the continuation of that story can be found actually back in this tiny little nugget in verse 14. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. 
But what can man do to wash his own heart of evil? What could you do to get the stain of sin away? And nothing. And so what do you need? Well, the answer is sort of the Sunday school answer, Jesus. Because Jesus paid it all, right? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We sang that just a little bit earlier. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Think about it. Jesus, Christ, stands as a greater Jeremiah. In every way, Christ stood in the same place that Jeremiah did. He identified wholly and completely with us, sinners. And at the same time, he demanded justice, demanded that the penalty of sin be paid in full. And this tension broke his heart as it broke Jeremiah's. And it caused him to weep. Luke Luke 19, verses 41 to 44. And when he, that is Jesus, drew near and saw the city, that is Jerusalem, He wept over it, saying, What would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make that make for peace? But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Sound familiar? Like Jeremiah? Jeremiah could do nothing but be faithful to preach God's word to the Israelites and hang on for the ride. But the love for the perishing and the love for righteousness and justice set Jesus on a different path. It set him on a path to do something about it. He is where love and justice meet, where his love says, I'll take this judgment that is against this poor sinner, against you, against me, and I'll take it Upon myself. And so judgment is satisfied. Justice is satisfied. Atonement has been made, and all in the name of a love for the spiritual idolater, for the spiritual adulterer. And so Christ is the true washer of sins in the line of Jeremiah. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 7 says, And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And Revelation 7, 14 says, They who are the saints have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so in Christ, there's a new perspective. Christ changes our perspective. We talked about three perspectives today. The first that people, or the people's perspective, which ends up in fear and going back to doing what they know, hoping against hope that their idols will come through. The second is the Lord's perspective of righteous anger and wrath over his people's spiritual idolatry, which leads to judgment and anger. And third, Jeremiah's perspective of being in the middle of both loving sinners and loving righteousness and justice, which leads to anguish and tears. And so Christ creates a new perspective the perspective of the cleansed. And the way that we react is different. We're able to hear judgment and rejoice for we know that we are not on our own. Christians, we don't react in fear. We don't react in anger. We don't react with weeping. We react with joy. Listen closely to question one from the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
He has fully paid, fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. And so what does this living for him look like? We still have righteous indignation over sin committed against our precious Lord. But we do this in the humility of knowing that but by the grace of God, we too would be condemned idolaters stuck in our ways. So we cannot be self-righteous. We still have a burning desire to see the perishing saved, but it doesn't lead to weeping because we experienced salvation through Christ, which is freely offered to them too. Do you not see how freeing the gospel is? We are free to worship and glorify God who has set us free from ourselves and to him. Let's pray. Father, as we read through Jeremiah in this series, Lord, we pray that your word would come alive to us in this way, that we would be able to put ourselves right there with Jeremiah, with the people, and see the lostness of our souls. Lord, would we see the sin that we have, whatever it may be, and would we see it for just how terrible it actually is, that we might see with desperation the only way out of that calamity, out of that disaster, and that way is Jesus. And would Jesus grow ever evermore in our consciousness as our Savior, our Lord, our Deliverer, our Cleanser, our Washer? And Lord, in you alone we ask that you that we ask that you would hear us and that you would transform us. And so it's in his name alone that we pray. Amen. Verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir, one up, stir up one another in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near.